0: Welcome to Created Terrain, a podcast of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. I am David Arley-Gates.
1: And I'm E. Calvin Beisner. David is our Director of Research and Education at the Cornwall Alliance, retired Professor of Climatology and Geography at the University of Delaware. I'm the founder and president of the Cornwall Alliance and a former professor of historical theology and social ethics and seminary and of interdisciplinary studies in college. And we get the fun of working together to promote biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, all as our work with the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a nonprofit organization dependent on gifts from generous folks like you. And so we hope that you will go to cornwallalliance.org. In addition to learning from the many, many different articles and major studies that you'll find there, also give a thought to donating to help us with our work. We are in the midst of a series of programs discussing a wonderful document called The Biblical Perspective of Environmental Stewardship, and this document was originally put together under the auspices of both the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation and the Coalition on Revival's International Church Council. The Biblical Perspective of Environmental Stewardship, Subduing and Ruling the Earth to the Glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. And David and I are just kind of walking through this, taking it one piece at a time, and unpacking a bit of what's involved in each of these different statements. The statements come in pairs. One affirms something and the next denies something, because as the late Francis Schaeffer, wonderful evangelical theologian and philosopher, pointed out, in an age of relativism, it's not enough to say what you do think. You also have to say what you don't think. Not enough to say what you affirm, but also you have to say what you deny because relativism is all around us. So, the last time we went through the first six affirmations and denials, and those kind of set the stage in terms of basic principles, which you might almost call prolegomena, in terms of God as creator, the the world as his creation, the creator-creature distinction, and particularly the creation of human beings in God's image, male and female, and giving them dominion over the earth. The fact that human beings alone are made in the image of God, and that they therefore are of greater value than all other forms of life on this earth, which is not to say that those other forms have no value. It's just to recognize that, yes, people should be a priority. Unlike David Brower, who was one of the founders of Earth First and prior to that had been on the board of the Sierra Club, we would not say that if we were out in the forest somewhere and saw a grizzly bear attacking a little child, we would have a tough time deciding whether to defend the child or the grizzly bear into whose province the child had wandered. No, we would definitely defend the child and attack the grizzly bear. Human beings are of greater value than bears and porpoises and horses and anything else. On today's program, we're going to go through points seven through 13 of the biblical perspective of environmental stewardship. And David, point number seven says, we affirm that though the earth is the Lord's, he has also given it to men. That's from Psalm 115, verse 16, which says, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. So, though the earth is the Lord's, he has given it to men, and mandated that they be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over everything that lives in it from Genesis 1.28, where having created man and woman in his image, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and everything that moves on the face of the earth. And then it adds, we deny that human dominion over the earth is, in principle, sinful, and that the possibility of its abuse negates the righteousness of its proper use.
0: Yeah, I think in the first part, the affirmation, uh, what sticks out with me is the word mandated. Mandate is not just simply we think you should do something, but it's mandating as in you are required to do that. Mm -hmm. And so a firm says we are mandated to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over everything that Mm -hmm. lives in it. A lot of people have issues with the idea of subdue and have dominion. It's sort of like a totalitarian dictator who rules with an iron fist over his people, we are supposed to mimic God, and mm-hmm. God does not rule over us with an iron fist. God rules over us with a loving hand. Sometimes you have to take children aside and show them the way in different ways, but we are to do the same with in the environment. Mm-hmm. The second thing to me is that in the denial, well, let me read it again. We deny that human dominion over the earth is sinful, and that the possibility of its abuse negates the righteousness of its proper use. So, while we do not deny that there are those who may abuse human dominion over the earth, we do deny that the potential for such abuse is an excuse for abdicating human dominion and the God-given commandment to us.
1: Yeah. I really want to pick up on what you just said there at the end, that the fact that some people abuse the earth doesn't mean that dominion itself is wrong. The idea that the potential of abusing anything means you shouldn't use it at all is very common, but it's totally fallacious. I mean, it's possible for us to abuse food by either overeating or undereating, And yet, obviously, we shouldn't conclude from that. You shouldn't eat because then, of course, we would all starve. It's possible to abuse sexuality, and yet, without sex, the human race would quickly disappear. All sorts of things we can use properly or we can abuse, and we need to not think that because we can abuse them, we must not use them. And so, this notion that because God has told us to have dominion over the earth, we cannot conclude from that. The Bible is embracing A notion of intentional abuse, destruction, poisoning of the planet, that sort of thing. It's not. As you said, our use, our dominion should reflect God's dominion. And in God's dominion, he brought order out of chaos, light out of darkness, life out of non-life, great abundance of life, great variety of life. Our dominion over the earth should be similar. We should be bringing greater order out of lesser order more life out of less life. We should be preserving the abundance of life. And even through hybridization and so on, genetic modification, we can actually increase the variety of life. Those are all things that I think are appropriate for human beings to do. One other point, there is a, a sense in God's saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We tend to read that as if all of those are grammatical, imperatives commands and yet in the hebrew they're not exactly imperatives they are more the, the word mandate or stipulations is is perhaps better they're similar to when he said let there be light and there was light let there be dry land and let the waters be gathered when god says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it he's not just telling us something that we're supposed to do, and then we get to choose to do it or not, he's telling us what will indeed happen. Humanity will indeed be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And so the question is, what kind of dominion are we going to exercise? Is it going to be a godly dominion, or is it going to be an ungodly dominion? That's why the Cornwall Alliance exists in part to describe what a godly dominion really looks like. We tend to summarize it by saying godly dominion is working to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors so that we're fulfilling the two great commandments that you referred to in the last episode, that we are to love God and to love our neighbor.
0: Number eight, we affirm that the earth and all its physical and biological systems are the effects of God's omniscient design, omnipotent creation, and faithful sustaining. And that when God completed his creative work, he proclaimed that it was very good, Genesis 1.31. Mm -hmm. By contrast, we deny that an infinitely wise designer, an infinitely powerful creator, and a perfectly faithful sustainer of the earth— would have made it susceptible to catastrophic degradation from proportionally small causes. And consequently, we deny that wise environmental stewardship readily embraces claims of catastrophe stemming from such causes. This takes us to a discussion of environmentalism and climate change, where the left believes we are perennially on the verge of a tipping point to a carbon dioxide-induced catastrophe. Personally, I, I simply cannot believe that God would create a world where human development would necessarily result in the destruction of the planet as a result of relatively small changes to the gases of the atmosphere.
1: Small? I'm going to pick up on that, David. Uh, You say small actions, and yet uh, we're told we're adding billions of tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere every year. That sounds big, doesn't it?
0: Yes, but it's big in total. But when we start talking about the actual amount of carbon dioxide, In the atmosphere that we are producing, it's a small percentage. And that's the important thing because there are lots of vegetation on the planet that need carbon dioxide to survive. Mm -hmm. If we reduce the carbon dioxide by about the amount that we've seen it go up, that life, we know it on the planet, would probably cease to exist because plant life would not be able to sustain itself. Plant life would disappear. And without plant life, animal life follows quickly.
1: One of the things that I find very common in environmental activist literature and campaigning is presenting numbers that sound really big to most of us, because we're just not used to dealing with such numbers, but without context, without proportion. So I remember once reading an article titled something like, what if Mount Everest were thrown into the ocean? What would it do? or every year, an amount of ice equivalent to the size of Mount Everest being thrown into the oceans. And that sounds like a huge, huge, huge amount of ice thrown into the oceans. But as a matter of fact, if you actually compare Mount Everest with the total volume of the oceans, you could throw Mount Everest into the oceans quite a few times and not make a measurable difference in in, uh, sea level. So when we talk about increasing CO2 in the atmosphere, By roughly 50%, which is what we've done over the last 200 years. If we've increased it by 50%, that sounds like an awful lot, but it's 50% of what was already a teeny tiny percentage. Namely, we're now at about 420 parts per million. That's 42 thousandths of 1%. And we've come up from about 28 thousandths of 1%. As this pair of statements in this article puts it, We would deny that an infinitely wise designer, infinitely powerful creator, perfectly faithful sustainer of the earth would have made it susceptible to, let's be specific here, catastrophic climate change from the proportionally small cause of increasing CO2 in the atmosphere from 28 thousandths of a percent to uh, 42 thousandths of a percent. And so we deny that wise environmental stewardship readily embraces claims of catastrophe stemming from such causes. And sometimes we've been criticized, the Cornwall Alliance has been, for saying that the climate system is robust, resilient, and self-correcting. And yet the whole notion that a tiny change in atmospheric chemistry is going to cause climate catastrophe depends on the notion that all the feedback mechanisms in the climate system Are positive. They will all enhance that impact uh, rather than some of them perhaps being negative. And David, I, I think one of the things that we learn in geography, in atmospheric chemistry and physics and like is that most of nature's feedback mechanisms are negative. If you perturb a system somehow, it will tend to seek to go back to its prior state rather than just running off into disaster. Is that correct?
0: That is exactly correct. Yeah, You know, if you had like a, a ball sitting on the tip of a pin, and you were to give it a push, you know, it'd fall off and it would never come back. Fortunately, though, that's not the way the climate system works. The factors that affect the Earth's climate have changed considerably over the life of the Earth. And we have just never been an ice ball or become affected by any runaway climate scenario of heating or cooling. And and this whole discussion then ties in nicely with the next affirmation denial pair, number nine, which is we affirm that by God's design, Earth and its physical and biological systems are robust, resilient, and self correcting, as you said. And we simply deny that they are indeed fragile.
1: Yeah. Now, and somebody can say, well, you know, look at the wing of a fruit fly. That's fragile, right? Okay but that's, again, we have to think of things proportionally. The wing of a fruit fly is fragile next to a fly swatter. It's not fragile compared with the things that the fruit fly tends to encounter throughout its lifespan. Now it's fragile next to a bird that comes and eats it, but it's not fragile compared with the air through which the fruit fly flies. And so all of these things have to be taken in context. And I've always thought that the notion that extremely tiny change in atmospheric chemistry is going to cause climate catastrophe is like saying that an architect designs a building so that if you lean on a wall, all the feedback mechanisms in the engineering of that building are going to multiply the effect of your weight until the whole building collapses. If that were the case, would we say that that architect was wise? I don't think so. We'd say that it was foolish. To think that the earth is fragile in that regard is really to think that God is that kind of architect. And we are supposed to praise God. And Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Firmament shows his handiwork. This is the opposite of the kind of thinking that tends to dominate so much of the environmental movement.
0: Number 10, we affirm that godly human dominion over the earth means men and women created in the image of God, laboring freely and lovingly together to enhance Earth's safety, fruitfulness, and beauty to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. We deny that godly human dominion entails humans being servants rather than masters of the Earth. We are to be servants to God first and foremost. The Earth somehow becomes God if we start to serve the Earth rather than God.
1: And that brings us to number 11. We affirm that when God had created Adam, he placed him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and guard it. We read about this in Genesis 2.15. And we deny that the Garden of Eden represents the whole earth, and that the instruction to cultivate and guard the garden ought to be reinterpreted to mean either that man is to serve and protect the garden or the earth, Or that man is to worship and protect the garden or the earth, or that man is to worship and hear God, either directly or through the earth or its parts. This may seem really strange. People are going to see this and say, Who in the world ever said that? The strange thing is that there have been some Christian writers on environmental stewardship or on creation care, people in the creation care movement who have argued that we should translate Genesis 2.15 to say that when God had made Adam, he put him in the Garden of Eden to serve and protect the garden, or even to worship and protect the garden, or to uh, worship and hear God either directly or through the earth, the garden, and its parts. And they also tend to equate the garden with the whole earth. And yet Genesis 2 gives us a clear description geographically of where the garden was, and it wasn't the entire planet. We see this distinction, and therefore the notion that the garden was to be cultivated and guarded means that we're supposed to do exactly the same thing to all the rest of the earth. I think we get a very different picture as we move farther along in Genesis, and that's where we come in number 12 of the affirmations and denials here, and I'm going to go ahead and skip us right into that and then ask you to comment on that. Number 12 says, we affirm that a comprehensive understanding of the relationship between God's placing Adam in the garden to cultivate and guard it, Genesis 2.15, and that really is the proper translation of the Hebrew there proper understanding, a comprehensive understanding of the relationship between God's placing Adam in the garden to cultivate and guard it, and God's commanding Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue and rule everything in it, Genesis one twenty-eight, entails a growing population that spreads out from the garden to till the whole earth and transform it from wilderness to garden and ultimately to garden city. And there were pulling from Revelation 21 and 22, where we see the the picture of the the new Jerusalem, the city of God descending out of heaven, and the the earth transformed, the new heavens and the new earth. We deny, this point goes on to say, that biblical earth stewardship or godly dominion is limited to keeping the earth in the condition in which man finds it. In other words, we deny that as many environmentalists put it, nature knows best. Nature knows best. And its transformation by humans is in principle wrong or harmful. We deny those things.
0: I know we jointly wrote an article, I think it was for Christianity Today, a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was based on something that bothered me in particular because we are told that we need to stop using fossil fuels. We need to keep them in the ground. Do not use them because they're producing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And I immediately thought of Matthew 25, 14 to 30, the parable of the talents, and how the worthless slave was given one talent, and what did he do with it? He didn't lose the talent. He didn't bet it on a horse race. He gave it back to the master at the end when the master returned in exactly the same form in which it was given to him. The master lost nothing in the process. But what the master lost was the ability of that to be of any use to anyone, because what did the worthless slave do? The worthless slave went out and hid it in the ground. He buried it in the ground. So if fossil fuels, for example, are buried in the ground, it's as if the worthless slave started with them in the ground and never bothered to do anything with it. While we're so concerned that this is going to have an environmental impact, we're not concerned on the fact that these could have an important impact on the lives of human beings that are struggling. And I think that's the key difference, is we should not be worshiping the planet. We should be taking care of, as we saw in the beginning of Matthew, we should be focusing on God and others. And in particular, when others are in need, A bit of cheap energy goes an awful long way to lifting them up. Yeah.
1: The last point that we're going to discuss today is we affirm that the Bible normally associates wilderness or wildness with divine judgment and curse. And we list quite a number of different verses there, and there are frankly a lot more that do that. And then we say, we deny that wilderness is the best state of the earth. Some people might think, well, then what do you want to do? Pave over the whole planet with parking lots? (laughs) No, that's not the point. And I think there is wonderful value in keeping some parts of the world in their natural state. And yet, even that requires some human dominion we can improve the way forests remain healthy for example if we manage them well and they can still be wonderfully beautiful places and we can still find it rare to encounter a human being in them or things like that we can see all sorts of wildlife and yet indeed genesis 1:28 does say that we are to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it our task really is to bring everything into subjection, not just to mankind, but to God himself, so that all of the earth reflects the glory of God and does so more and more as time goes by.
0: Again, we are working through one of the landmark documents of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. It's available on our website, which is cornwallalliance.org. That's CornwallAlliance.org. And if you go into our landmark documents, you'll find the biblical perspective of environmental stewardship, subduing and ruling the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. I've been David LeGates.
1: And I'm Cal Beisner. Thanks again for joining us.